Well, welcome to Thursday nights here at Calvary Chapel South Bay. If you're visiting with us, we are delighted that you're here. Thanks for spending a portion of your evening with us. If you turn to the sixth chapter of the book of Romans, Romans 6, we'll take the first 10 verses tonight, a study that I've entitled Dead or Alive. Now, when you read that title, it's somewhat confusing unless you've been with us in the full study here in the book of Romans, unless you understand that from God's perspective, there are only two types of people on this world, two types of people that have ever existed, people who know the Lord Jesus, people who are saved by grace, and those who aren't. And so the choice is yours. Because you can choose to be either dead or alive. You're born dead in your trespasses and sins. But by having a second birth, you can choose to be very much alive. And it is to that place that the Apostle Paul now begins to speak here in Romans chapter 6. The truth is, for all of us, Jesus came to set us free from the bondage of death. The problem is that as sinners, unless that condition is changed, unless we become righteous as God is righteous, we remain dead. And one day, not only will we die physically, but we will also be completely dead spiritually. That's that second death that's spoken of in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, chapter 20. And so as we begin tonight, a question would arise, because now the Apostle has given us, through the power of the Holy Spirit as he writes, this incredible picture, what Adam messed up, Jesus fixed up. And he did so by grace, amen? So we're saved by grace through faith. We now have this incredible new life that we can live. It's a gift of God. And so, as it was then, so it is still today, people often abuse the grace of God. So much so that they believe that now that they're a child of grace, because it's a free gift, does it really matter what you do with your life? That's the question that Paul answers here in chapter 6. He'll elaborate on it in chapter 7, using his own life as an example. Are we able to live lives that are antinomian? Anti meaning against, nomos meaning law. Can we really completely just disregard God's holiness now that we're saved by grace? Can we live as we please? Can we live like heathens even though we're citizens of heaven? See what the word has to say to us tonight as we pick up in verse 1. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that your word is so clear and so explicit with how we are to live. And Lord, we pray because we have been made alive that we would live lives that testify of our new birth. God bless us as we study your word. Would you make these words uh, deeply Enrich our hearts, cause our minds to be transformed and renewed. Lord, help our actions to absolutely speak 
what we believe with our hearts. And so we bless you, we praise you, we ask now that you would just take us on a journey through these truths. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 1, Romans 6. What shall we say then? He poses a question. You can almost see by the Holy Spirit him entertaining the very thoughts that many people would have. If you live in a carnal society, which we do, and you've now found out that you're saved by grace, and that grace is God's gift to you, and it's not of any merit of your own, uh, you might have had that same question at some point in time in your life. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? I've had people actually tell me, well, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to help God give me a good testimony. That's the reason that I still engage in these things. You know, after all, when God forgives me, I can just tell people how good God is. Because I'm still a drunkard. I'm still a womanizer. I'm still involved in drugs. I still rob banks. I still do everything wrong. And so God's grace is really abundant in my life. We laugh. We giggle. We even at times can say, well, that's kind of crazy. But nonetheless, people still live like that, and some churches still teach that to be the case. Not this one, by the way. He answers his own question. He uses a Greek phrase, meogenitor. Certainly not. It is the strongest condemnation of what has just been said, without him using profanity. It is as, it's as if he took the Greek language, he says, what's the strongest thing I can say to refute this in the fewest words, and it translates into English, certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? He poses a secondary question. Or do you not know? And I want you to notice the way these things are phrased. He gives rhetorical question. He answers them briefly. He provides the background argumentation. Then he will answer in full this grand question. How should we live our lives? How should we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ, were baptized into his death? When you got baptized, you identified with the death of Christ. When you went under the water, you're saying your old man, your old woman, your old life is no more. It's dead. You're identifying with the work of Jesus Christ that he accomplished on the cross That was his death, followed by his burial, followed by, praise God, his resurrection. Amen? You're above the water, you're in the water, you come out of the water. Those three parts are what you're signifying when you're baptized. Do you not know that as many of us were baptized in Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death, and therefore we were buried with him through baptism into that death? That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also shall be, should, 
walk in the newness of life. You see, he says the result of you being a child of God is that the old you is dead. Matter of fact, it's so dead that it actually no longer exists because you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead now lives in you, and so consequently, you should not ever walk as you once walked as a zombie. Someone who's alive but dead. You see, an awful lot of Christians try and walk between those two places. Kind of part alive and still a little bit dead. And your Bible says you should not be able to do that. You're supposed to walk in that newness of life. So we also should walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united together in his likeness of his death, then certainly we will also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So look, he's using a rational, logical argument here. This is not overtly complex. It's like, look, if Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and he is now alive and lives forevermore, if you were also killed with him figuratively, if the titulus of your life, that's that plaque that was on Jesus' cross, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, but for you, it was a list of every single sin that you have ever committed have committed today, and will ever commit. That's what was on the cross for you. That's how you were identified at the cross. There it was, boom. You deforested Israel to make the paper for that list. It was nailed to Calvary's cross. Jesus took every one of those sins to the grave, and when he was raised up, your sins were wiped out. Hallelujah. So how can you walk as dead people? For if we've been united together with him in the likeness of the death, then certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. The picture is this. It's as if you were on the cross with Jesus. The old you. The one that Paul identified in Ephesians 2 as the one who was dead in your trespasses and sins. Crucified with him. That the body of sin might be done away with. Remember what Adam did for us? Nice thing he did for us, amen? Caused us all to be born sinners. So in that sense, you were born with a body of sin. You were born, in essence, a sinner. But that body, because of Christ, can be done away with. You can get a new one. 
And it's not just a remake of the old you, it's a brand new you. A completely new you. And then he says something amazing. That we should no longer be slaves of sin. Think on that for a couple of seconds. That we, who were put to death with Christ at the cross, and buried in the grave with Christ in his grave, and then raised up in newness of life with him, that we are no longer in a figurative sense, we should not still be slaves to sin. Why? Because you've been raised to new life, amen? The new you is the real you. The old you is the one that got put to death with Jesus. And the new you that was raised up has the same power that Christ had to resist sin. Do you realize that? In your own self, you don't have that power, but because of him, you do. You were indwelt by the same spirit that flung the stars into space. You have the power to resist sin. So it says you should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. The penalty of that sin is death, amen? Do you see how he's linking these things together? What Adam did, Jesus took care of, and now he's saying, okay, here's how we identify which side you're on. Are you dead or are you alive? For if we died with Christ, we believe that we also shall live with him. You see, you can't be halfway between those two places. There's no such thing as being partially saved. You can't be kind of, sort of, redeemed. You're not maybe, sort of, every once in a while, sanctified. You're not just partially justified. And you are not one day going to be kind of, maybe, sort of, glorified. You either is or you isn't. You got it? So the result of that is your life should speak to which one you are. Your life is supposed to be marked by living that says, I'm alive! Now you know why the world is confused about what Christianity means? Because we got a whole bunch of Christians wandering around the earth who cannot say, I'm alive! Because they're still walking like dead people. They're still living lives that testify falsely against the risen nature of our King. For he who has died has been freed from sin. And now if we died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. It's a once and for all transaction. Amen? It's not kind of sort of halfway between. 
It isn't like, well, I, you know, maybe someday I'm going to finally get completely saved. You're either saved or you're not saved. You're either a believer or an unbeliever. You're a saint or an ain't. You is or you isn't. There's no place in between. So if there's no place in between, and the way your life looks is like you're in between, you're supposed to ask yourself the question, how then can we who have been raised live any longer in sin? That's the result of it. It's supposed to shock you that you're not living the way that you're supposed to live. It's supposed to bother you that you're not living the way you're supposed to live. You were supposed to care about the content of your life. And if you don't, then you need to question, not me, not anyone else, you need to question whether you're of the faith or not. It's a very plain teaching. Death no longer, check this, where does death come from? Sin. You're no longer alive to sin. You're dead to sin. So death no longer has dominion over him And the death that he died, he died to sin. How often? Once and for all. So when Christ died, in essence, he killed sin for you. He killed sin for me. He destroyed sin's power. He destroyed sin's position. He destroyed sin the penalty of sin. When he died, he killed sin for us. He died to sin once and for all, but the life that he lived, he lives. He lives to God. Let's break this down. You talk about amazing grace. You see, amazing grace does amazing things. Amen? Amazing grace does amazing things in your life. Amazing grace is not something we talk about and sing about. Amazing grace is something we live. Amen? We should all be living lives that testify of God's amazing grace. Let me give you a little story because it's a perfect illustration. Most of you know the author of that song, which is the most often sung Christian hymn anywhere in the world, Amazing Grace. That song was written in 1779 by John Newton. little backstory to him. In his early teens, he ran away from England. He joined the crew of a slave ship. He was about as vile a person as one could be. He became a drunkard. He was evil in every sense of the word. But in a very sad and yet wonderful twist of God's irony, he wasn't that good as a servant on a ship, a slave ship. And so you know what happened to him? He was actually given 
to an African woman as a slave. And he was forced to serve her. He was cruelly mistreated. He lived on leftovers from the woman's meals. He ended up having to survive by digging wild yams to keep himself alive. He eventually escaped. He himself fled to the coast of Sierra Leone, where he was picked up by a slave ship. And he was actually treated as a slave all the way back to England. And on that voyage, that ship nearly sank. And it was there that he wrote that song, Amazing Grace. After his conversion in 1748, he became a selfless and tireless opponent of the slave trade and was greatly responsible for the abolitionist movement in England. But more importantly, for posterity's sake, He spent the rest of his life, 42 years, tirelessly preaching the gospel to anyone who would listen. If you get a chance to see the movie Amazing Grace, I encourage you to watch it. He became a pastor in the Church of England. To this day in London, London at the Olney Chapel, you can go there and see his grave. Here's his epitaph. John Newton, he wrote this himself shortly before he died, clerk, once an infidel and a libertine, but a servant to the slaves of Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith to those he had long labored to destroy. You see, that's what grace does. That's what grace does. You see, grace does something to us. Grace changes us. Amen? Grace changes us. It changes our speech. Grace changes our actions. Grace grace changes our cares our concerns. Grace changes our treasure and how we value it and what it is. Let's see a reason the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy in chapter 1 said, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent aggressor, and yet I was shown mercy. You see, grace changes us. We go from being very dead to very alive. We go from having no purpose to having the ultimate purpose. We go from being lifeless in the way we live to being full of life, having what Jesus called abundant life. Amen? Not just living and getting through, but life that has purpose and meaning. The Apostle Paul spent most of his time really ministering to people who we would call the worst of the worst in areas of the world at that time that were as debauched as existed. 
the Corinthians, the Romans. He's ministering in the Greek culture, the Roman culture. He's going to places that you and I would drive around. He writes to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He writes to those people in Corinth. Now listen to this. In Corinth, there was not a great place to go. When Christians thought of Corinth, they're like, nah, I'm going to skip that place, okay? To those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, he opens that letter up. But he then goes on to tell them in chapter 6, do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, why would he call them saints in chapter 1 and then say, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators or idolaters or adulterers nor effeminate nor homosexuals nor thieves or covetous nor drunkards or revelers, swindlers, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And here's the key to how he could say these two things, which seem to be so divergent. And such were, past tense, some of you. You see, the key to those statements, you're saints of God, and you should not be these things, is they should be part of your past and not part of your present. Amen? You see, Scripture does not let the believer off the hook. The believer is not released from living godly life. The believer is encouraged in godly living, in a Christ-like living. That's the beauty of amazing grace. That's what saved a wretch like me, as John Newton said. That's what saved a wretch like me. That's what saved a wretch like you. Amen? You see, amazing grace does something to us. It changes us. It's a simple thing. You see, he's pointing to the holiness that we ought to have. And Paul moves on to the subject of this life that we ought to live. And that's why he says, what shall we say then in verse 1 here? That's what he's getting at. He's saying, what should we say to these things? The salvation by grace and through faith alone. You know, couldn't I just increase my testimony? I mean, you've got to admit, John Newton has a pretty powerful testimony, Amen. Can I tell you, God doesn't want anyone to ever have that testimony? From God's perspective, he he would like you to not have a testimony of the evil that you've been saved from. That's just simply a picture of his mercy working out in your life. It's not better that you're more sinful. It is better that you are more sinless. But that great grace covers all of it. You see, God delights to justify the ungodly. That's true. But he doesn't delight to have to make you saved again and again and again and again and again in that vernacular. Once you're saved, you're supposed to start living for him, not against him. You see, people like to say, well, I'm just demonstrating God's grace. 
character that maybe many of you know. Perverted religious advisor to the ruling Romanov family of Russia, Rasputin. He actually taught that God's grace was exemplified in the amount of things that God had to save you from. And so the more sinning you did, the more grace was abounding in your life. And as you might imagine, he had a pretty large following of men. It's like, really? You mean I can be a pervert and God loves me more? Yep, that's exactly what he taught. You mean I can go on being a drunkard and God loves me all the more because he gets to forgive me all the time because I'm constantly out of... Yep, that's what he meant. People have been thinking that same thing. The Corinthians were thinking that same thing. The Galatians thought that same thing. The Romans in chapter 1 thought the same thing. Well, wow, if I'm saved by grace, and man, I'm just going to show everybody exactly how gracious God is. I'm going to live the way I want. That is not God's plan. You don't need to be an extraordinary sinner. How should we live? We should live alive. We should be alive unto Christ. Our lives should scream Jesus and holiness. We should be so different that people freak out when they're around us. Serious is a heart attack. It should be so obvious there's something different about you and the way that you conduct yourself while you're on this earth that people should actually ask you, what in the world is wrong with you? And you, then you can tell them, it's not what's wrong, it's what's really right. I've been saved by God's grace. How then can I go on and live in sin any longer? My life should scream Jesus. Question comes, can there be true holiness then? The church has always been in danger of setting up rules and regulations. And I don't mean to point fault But I think it's important to see one of the reasons that the Catholic Church teaches indulgences and penance is to placate your sin. You just get to do whatever you want to do, and then you get to spend another thousand years in purgatory. So instead of living a holy life and changing, being transformed by the renewing of your mind, it is in essence... Well, you know, everybody does it. So, 50 bucks, 12 Hail Marys, a couple of our fathers, and oh, by the way, 17 more years in purgatory. You see, that's what religion does. That's what religion does. Relationship says you shouldn't sin in the first place. You should live your life in a way that pleases God. And oh, by the way, don't come ask for forgiveness from me. You need to get that from God. I have zero power to exonerate your sin. It's between you and God. Jesus did that on the cross. You see, people have always been looking for ways to make forgiveness a ritual. 
to prescribe some kind of conduct that somehow placates our ability to sin. Your Bible teaches holiness. Paul wasn't going to abandon God's grace to accommodate the legalists, and he was not going to abandon God's righteousness to accommodate the libertine people. You've got to have both. Now, does that mean sinless perfection in the life of the believer? Not while you're still breathing. But it is exactly how you're supposed to attempt to live your life. As close to perfect as you possibly can. Not as close to the world as you can get. Jude actually declared in the fourth verse there in Jude, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now why is that important? Because we call Jesus Christ our Lord, amen? Amen. He is Yahweh Adonai. He is God who is Lord. Lord means master. So if he's actually the master, that means he tells us what to do, amen? So the point that's being made here is that when you say yes to the grace of God, you also say yes to the leadership of God, to the lordship of God to the rulership of God, to the mastery of God. You see, a lot of Christians want Savior. But the whole Lord thing, can we save that for later? That's why D.L. Moody rightly phrased it. If Jesus Christ is not Lord of all, then may it be that he is not Lord at all. In other words, if he's not the master, then you have to question, are you actually dead to sin? Are you really alive to Christ? You see, that's what's in view here. It's that holy living that should be a part of our lives. You see, very often I get people, and you can ask any of the pastors here, sometimes in counseling situations, what we end up with is, Whose sin is worse or better than someone else's sin? It's not, am I right with God? It's, I'm seemingly more right with God than he or she is right with God. It becomes about magnitude of sin, not about whether you're honoring the Lord or not. We are supposed to honor the Lord 100%. And so what God's word declares about any particular situation, anything in your life, if scripture speaks to it, that's God's opinion, and it is also truth, and thereby it is your directive. Did you know that? It's not optional. We don't get to make it up as we go. That's why marriage is between a man and a woman. That's what God said. That's why you can't sleep with your boyfriend or girlfriend before you're married. That's called fornication. That's what God said. 
That's why it's not okay to socially drink because it leads to drunkenness. That's what God said. Do you understand what I'm saying? Our living is to be gauged by God's word. Not by what Uncle Bob says is okay. Not by what the world does. God's word on divorce is this. I hate divorce, says the Lord. So when someone comes and says, well, I think God told me to divorce my husband or my wife, and they say, well, you know, you know I'm just tired of the toast being burnt. I'm going, that wasn't God you heard from. That was your old nature that's unredeemed, that still is resident in there, that's supposed to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And you're supposed to be dead to that. So if you profess Christ, you need to have an attitude adjustment. Because Jesus is Lord, and that's what he says about this subject. And oh man, do the flames begin to come out the ears and the eyeballs burn with fire. And I hear things, you're not listening to me. No, I am listening. You're not listening to God. That's the problem. Because he's spoken on this issue. We either believe it or we don't. Can there be truly true holiness? Yes, there can. Is that going to be tough at times? Oh, you better believe it. Because Paul was right in, us dwells no good thing, amen? We still have the capacity, but we need to resist the devil if we want him to flee. The astounding answer. Paul answers his own question. May it never be. Mayo genitum. The strongest idiom that you have in the entire New Testament that is a repudiation of anything. You cannot say it any stronger. May it never be that we are found as people who think sin's okay in our lives. He doesn't even argue the truth. That's how strongly the Holy Spirit spoke in this to him. He doesn't even argue it. He simply says it can't be. In essence, he's saying, are you daft? Would you even consider that as a reality? And if you do, you, you really need to consider who your Lord is. It's as strong as it can be in the original language. Christ died for you. How could you think that? Christ saved you. How could you do that? He, he, he's, he's just giving us a, a flat statement. He says, look, it, it can't happen. Not in your life. We would modernize. Are you nuts? Is there something wrong with your faculties of thinking? Have you lost the ability to even rightly cognate? There's no way in the world you could possibly come to that conclusion. That's how insane it is to think that way. He doesn't equivocate it. He doesn't talk about the superabundance. He just says, there's no way. When a person is redeemed, God not only declares us righteous, but he also develops righteousness in us. You see, it's not just a judicial transaction. 
It's not just forensic. It's actual. We now begin to live righteous lives. Grace changes everything. We're not going to be perfected, as Paul wrote to the church at Philippi in the first chapter there in verse 6, until the day of Christ Jesus. But that old self is actually now a corpse. It doesn't have any life. The life I now live, that's why Paul said, the life that I now live, I live in Christ Jesus. It may be imperfectly, but it's very deliberate that I'm living for Christ. That's how you know. That's why when people come and they say, well, I'm engaged in this, 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 and this, and they're all things that a Christian shouldn't be engaged in, I will always ask them, then how do you know that you're actually a believer? And here's the frightening thing, you don't. The Christian that persists in sin loses their assurance that they're even saved. That's where the enemy gets into their life. I'm not saying that you're not. I'm simply saying that when you live like you're not saved, you don't have the evidence of the Spirit in your life at work to where you can say, I know I'm a child of God because I'm changed. We need to live lives that say we're changed. He begins to articulate this ar- argument. He picks up in verse 3 and basically gives us four uh, arguments here. And the first one is, is that we're baptized into Christ. He says, look, how, how can a believer glorify God by continuing in sin? The answer is you can't. Why? Because the old you was buried with Jesus. It's a very simple, logical argument. You can't continue in sin because that you doesn't even live anymore. The new you lives. Right? I'm now alive in Christ. So the old you, the one that was dead, got buried with Jesus. And that dead you stays dead as a believer. That dead you doesn't have the power over you anymore. That sin doesn't have the power over you anymore. We've been baptized into Jesus in that sense. Our identity is in him. And and by the way, this is not just a New Testament thing. This is the very same thing that was used to, to speak to the Jewish people about Moses. They were baptized into Moses. And the word there actually means to be fused together with. They were made one with. They identified. If you talk to a Jewish person, I'm identifying with Moses and the law. We identify with Jesus in grace. Amen? That's who I identify with. That's who I am. When I pull out my passport in a foreign country, I am identifying with the United States of America. When I put that passport down and I hand it to them, it says, I'm an American citizen. That means I live inside the borders of this country. I can't live outside of the borders. I can't have another constitution. I have to live by this constitution. I have to live by the laws of this country and within the borders of this country in order to be considered an American. Amen? There is no other way. You can live in other countries, but you have your allegiance here. If you become an enemy of the Constitution of the United States, you can have your passport revoked. Did you know that? That's what happens if you become an enemy of the United States of America. 
Why? Because you've said you no longer want to live by the Constitution. Until they take your passport. Until you renounce that, guess what? You can't come and go as you please. As a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, you fully identify with Jesus Christ and God's holiness, and you're supposed to live within the confines of his law. Even in grace. Doesn't mean that the law saves you. It means it identifies you. It says that when you live that way, you're saying you're different than the rest of the world. The world that doesn't know the Lord. Because they live by a different set of rules, amen? Their constitution's a little different. It's demonic. Scripture says that the God of this age... Satan is the one that controls the world today. God's allowed him that time. It's called the kingdom age. And right now, he's pulling the strings behind the scenes. And so you can either follow him or you can follow Jesus. If you follow Jesus, you look like the things that mark you as a child of God. Walk like, talk like, act like. We were baptized into Christ. We say we are in him. We are also identified in Christ's death and resurrection. So the second thing is, it's a historical fact. It takes you all the way back to the cross. As I said in the introduction, your titulus was nailed up there. The, the list of sins, the list of your crimes, the things that you had done that would have prevented you from entering into the presence of God for all eternity, those things were nailed to Calvary's cross. And in that sense, you were taken back to the cross and you died with Jesus. So that old you's dead. No longer alive. Got put to death. And that old you stayed dead. Because this passage says the death that he died, he died to sin. The old sin nature for a believer was killed at the cross of Christ. Hallelujah. That's how come you can have victory over sin. Because it's dead in you. It's not alive in you. We walk now in that newness of life. And notice there, verses 3 through 5, it says that we walk in newness of life. Newness is a unique word, and sometimes we identify it two different ways. In the Greek language, if you use the word karios, it's a newness of quality or a newness of character. It is not neos, which is a newness in time. It's not just a time that you got saved. It's a newness in character that you walk in. It's a newness in quality that you walk in. It's not just at some point in time you became a believer. You actually got changed when that happened. There was a transaction that occurred. And it was not just a legal transaction that took your name out of one category and put it in another. You literally became a new person in Christ Jesus. Amen? Such an important passage of Scripture. Because when Scripture says you're new, in Ezekiel 36, it says you're going to receive a new heart. In chapter 18, new spirit. Psalms tell us you receive a new song. Revelation tells you receive a new name. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells you you're a new creation. Galatians 6, you're a new creature. Ephesians 4 says you're a new self, a new you. 
every single one of those times, it's karyos. New character. It's not the old you kind of fixed up. I, I like those car rehab shows. I really do. You take pieces of junk and all of a sudden it's just like, you know, they stick some humongous big block V8 in them. There was a thing on the internet today. Somebody took an AMC Gremlin, the world's ugliest car, and actually made it look cool. You know why? Because it's basically a new car. Because you can't do nothing to a Gremlin to make it look good. You've got to make it new. As Christians, we are like the gremlins of the people world. We've been made completely new. You've got a new power plant. It's the Holy Spirit. Amen? you got new. You talk about some chrome. You'd be sporting some chrome from heaven. You used to be covered in goo, and now you are shiny and new. Amen? You're new. You're a new you. You're not just kind of a rehab. Hallelujah. You see, our old life is not like our new life. The third thing, that body of sin has been actually destroyed. Man, the old you got put in the crusher. You ever seen what happens to a car when they put them in one of those crushers? It's no longer a car. It's just a little brick of metal with some rubber and plastic in it. It's not even a car anymore. That's what happened to the old you. Jesus squished that and changed. It's not you anymore. Your old self was crucified with him that our body of sin might be done away. It's gone. He remembers not your sins as far as the east is from the west. The old you is so far gone you can't even be seen anymore. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And the word old, our old self here in, in verses 6 and 7, it, it's not using, again, archaeos, which is, which is the chronological age, but paleos, which means worn out, useless, and done. The old you is paleolithic. It's old and turned to stone, and it can't move anymore. That's why Paul could say to to the Galatian church in chapter 2, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I'm actually, that old me is no longer here. It's the new me. In other words, in our new life, Christians are not made over. We are divinely bestowed with a new existence in Christ. Completely new you. After salvation it's kind of like there were two fields they were right alongside of each other and you started off working in Satan's field. And now you're working in God's field right next door. You can still see Satan's field. But you don't work over there anymore. And you don't go over there anymore. You can see it. You can see it in the world. Amen? You can even see it in yourself at times. But you stay in your field and you plant good crops. You do that Hosea thing, that harvest of love is what comes out of your life now. And then finally, that one death of Christ was, was the death to sin. That's why there in Revelation 2, you're not going to be hurt by the second death. You, you see, if you're born twice, you're only going to die once. But if you're born once, you're going to die twice. 
You're going to die one day, not just physically, but you're also going to die spiritually if you haven't been born again. That's why Jesus said you must be born again. He didn't say it's a good idea that you be born again. He said you must be born again. You have to. Otherwise, you're the walking dead. You're just waiting to die that second time. You're going to die one time, then you're going to die again. That's why in chapter 20, there in Revelation, it says death and Hades is going to be cast into the lake of fire. Abuso is going to be open, hell thrown in. And along with it, everyone who has not professed Christ. That's the second death. You're, you're saved from that. Because when you are saved from your sin, you're saved from the second death. You're saved from the wrath of God. There's a lot of things you're saved from. You're saved from who you used to be. And so here's the point. He died to the penalty of sin. He took it upon himself. Jesus took what was rightly yours. He took your titulus and erased it. It's gone. Every sin you have committed will commit today or will commit in the future. And he did that for the whole world. Secondarily, he died to the power of sin, breaking that power forever over you. How many of us in this room tonight can say, God has delivered me? I can. God's delivered me from the power of sin. Praise God. That's who we are as Christians. It's what Jesus did for you. We mustn't forget these things. Sometimes we walk around like we're powerless. We have been delivered forever from the power of sin because of the blood of Christ. We have victory in Jesus. Full, total victory in Jesus. Because Christ died to it once and for all, because you're alive, you have also died to it. And one day you're going to receive the, the glory of what that fully means. Right now, our job is to live as close to the cross as we can, as near to the heart of God as we can, to say no to sin every moment of every day and to live our lives in such a way that the world looks at us and says, it's really clear there's something different. In him, you are alive to Christ. You are dead to sin. And we absolutely should be acting like it. Amen? Would you stand with me? The moment the worship team's going to play one last song. I'm going to have some pastors come forward right now, and I want to speak to you for just a moment. You see, I think there are times when we, in our lives,
try and minimize sin. We try and explain it away. And I shared some examples of that with you tonight. And I want to tell you, God's grace is sufficient to deal with that sin in your life. So that you don't have to minimize it. I want to also tell you that God's grace is sufficient to save you from your sin. But you have to confess Jesus Christ as Lord and then live for him. And so as we begin to worship, if you're here tonight and and you're struggling with some area of sin in your life. And you know you're not supposed to even be engaged in that behavior. And you want to be done with it. I'm going to ask you to come forward and be prayed for and ask the Holy Spirit to empower you to live the life that has been purchased for you. Don't be like that person who actually owns a mansion but lives in a hovel. Your life was bought and paid for with the blood of Christ. And I want to encourage you to experience the fullness of that is to walk in obedience to God. And so come and be prayed for. If you don't know the Lord, we're going to pray, and then we're going to worship. But I want you to bow your heads right now. And if you're here tonight, and you say, I I don't even know Jesus, but you want to, Christians, if you bow your heads, if you're here tonight and you want to know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, would you raise your hand where you're at right now so we can pray together? Wherever you are, anywhere in the sanctuary. We have people looking so we can see. Anyone at all. Don't miss the opportunity. Another minute. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your goodness, Lord. That you would redeem us. That you, Jesus, came to this earth to pay the price for my life. Lord, you took that chart of accounts down off of my cross. You erased every last one of them, past, present, and future. And we thank you for that great grace. And we pray that you would bless us, Lord. Help us to walk in that newness of life. Help us to not test you help us to not fall into temptation Lord keep us underneath that spout of glory we love you we thank you for what you've done in our lives we pray tonight God that you would bless us with your presence in our lives as we begin to worship you as we close the service Lord would you speak into our lives those areas that that need some touch from you Would we leave them here and walk freed from the bondage? We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.